بسم الله الرحمن الرحیم لا حول ولا قوت الا بالله العلی العظیم الحمد لله رب العالمین و صلی الله علی سیدنا محمد و آله الطیبین الطاهرین اللهم اخرجنی من ظلمات الوهم و اکرمنی بنور الفهم اللهم افتح علينا ابواب رحمتك وانشر علينا خزائن علومك برحمتك يا ارحم الراحمين This is our second session after giving uh, an introduction to the whole book and the project which covers five books Now we want to start with unit 2 which is on knowing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on theology. As I said, unit one is for your self-study. Before I start with the book, I want to mention something about different ways of knowing God. In Islamic theology and also in Islamic philosophy when it comes to discussion about God which we call al-ilahiyat bil-ma'na al-akhas when we talk about uh, theology in its narrower sense what normally we do is we first prove the existence of God then we study different attributes of God. This is general pattern in all Islamic books on Kalam, on philosophy, on Aqa'id. First, existence of God, and then attributes of God. But in philosophy of religion, which is a new kind of study, where they discuss issues which are common in different religions without being necessarily committed to any religion. In philosophy of religion, which is different from theology, which is different from Kalam, they just want to see how different issues are addressed in different religions and the main thing for them is to see whether they are meaningful or not. And the second is whether they are consistent or not. Anyway, what they do normally is they first talk about the qualities or attributes of God. And then they talk about the existence of God. And the reason is because there are so many different understandings of God among religions that first they try to come up with some understanding of what we mean by God, and then they try to prove it, whether he exists or he doesn't exist. They have arguments for the existence of God. They have arguments against the existence of God. But all is after talking about the attributes of God. But the way we do, which is uh, more logical, because we have to first establish the existence of God, is we start with the arguments first for the existence of God. 
This is one point. So if you see in some books on philosophy of religion, the order is different, uh, then you shouldn't uh, wonder why you know, the order is different. The second thing is that there is actually no argument against the existence of God. What atheists normally do is they try to question and challenge the arguments which are set for the existence of God. So, for example, they say argument from design has problems. Argument, I don't know, which is based on uh, fetra has problems. So they try to object arguments which are developed for the existence of God. They don't have any argument to prove that God doesn't exist. The maximum they have, which in reality even that is not an argument, the maximum is the problem of evil. That they say, because there are moral or natural problems in the world, moral problems relate to the problems caused by human beings because of their free will, like war. Natural problems are caused by nature, like earthquakes, you know, flood, famine. So they say because of these problems, then God, who is omnipotent, who is capable of doing everything, and who knows everything, and who is benevolent, cannot exist. Again, in reality, it's not proving that God doesn't exist. Again, they ask the believers to come up with an understanding of God that can answer to these problems in the world. So this is something that also I wanted you to remember because uh, some of you may be uh, teachers, some of you may, may study philosophy, so I wanted you to also know this point. So there is no argument actually against the existence of God and even the problem of evil is something which after careful consideration, is objecting the ideas of the believers about God. It's not a proof for non-existence. The third point I want to mention in introduction is that there are different ways of understanding God. One way is based on rational arguments, intellectual discourse. We try to prove the existence of God by following a logical procedure for developing a deduction. Uh, if you study Manter, you know that uh, we have deduction, we have induction, we have uh, analogy three types of uh, forming arguments. So the best is qiyas. So we try to bring two premises together and form an argument. For the argument to be valid, then the premises should be valid. Also, the form of the uh, reasoning should be all right, which is what we discuss in logic. In any case, this is one approach. We bring arguments, intellectual arguments for the existence of God. But 
there is another approach and that is the mystical approach some people have immediate understanding of God and for them the existence of God is not less clearer than their own existence or than existence of other things so they are not in need of using any other thing to come to an understanding of God this type of mystical approach is very powerful for the people who achieve it for example Imam Hussein salam in Dua Arafah he says to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ayakunu lighayraka min adh-dhuhur ma laysa lak is any clarity for anything other than you that you lack so is this for example desk or this i don't know microphone in front of me clearer than god when was the time that you were absent and then i needed a guide to bring me to you so for a person who is in that level of encounter with god there is no need to argue for the existence of god because he finds the existence of god the clearest thing for example imam alayhi salam says when was the time that you were away from me you were far from me so that i needed to use your author your effects the things that you have created in order to come to you so this level of understanding of god is very powerful because this is based on personal relation with god this is perhaps the only way to develop a relation with god as a person because when we follow the intellectual approach when we form arguments what we prove is the existence of an instance of a universal concept for example you prove that there must be a necessary being there must be a valuable wujud or there must be an intelligent designer okay so intelligent designer is a universal concept is a mafhum kulli and you maximum can prove that this has been actualized realized in one reality so you know it's like for example sometimes i know a person because i have met that person i have lived with that person sometimes i have heard about that person through concepts for example someone says i have a brother who is this uh, age who has studied this who has these characteristics okay it's all 
universal in the sense that it's all kulli, it's general. Although it's about one person, but the way I know that person is through general concepts. I have never had any personal encounter with that person. The philosophers, what they have and what they can offer, which is of course very valuable, but at the end is general. It's talking about God in a general way. Like someone describing for you a place that you have never been there, or a person that you have never met, or a food that you have never tasted. Okay? This is general description. But the mystics, they have personal encounter with God. They have personal relation with God. And they have personal understanding of God. And this is ma'rifah, which is personal. It's not just knowledge. It's not just ilm. It's personal. It's particular. So this is something that I wanted you to have in mind so that you know that uh, you should learn this approach, but you should not be satisfied just by being able to argue for the existence of God in this way. Every one of us should try to have that personal, immediate encounter with God that for you, the existence of God becomes the most obvious thing. Okay. In the Quran, you find that the focus is on proving the unity of God and correcting the image of God that the polytheists had more than the focus on proving the existence of God. The same is with the Bible. So the existence of God was not that much in need of emphasis, in need of proof. Because even the pagans had faith in God. But it was in a polytheistic way. It was something that suffered from shirk. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, even if you ask these idol worshippers, who created the skies and the earth? If you ask them who created the skies and the earth, they would say God has created them. It means that deep in their mind, they knew of God, the creator, even if they worshipped idols. Therefore, the great emphasis in the Quran is on correcting people's understanding of God. But still there are some verses of the Quran which prove the existence of God. But this is not the main focus. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that Am khulliqu min ghayri shay'in am humul khaliqun Are they created from nothing or they have created themselves. 
those who don't believe in God, either they should be able to prove that they have created themselves, which doesn't make sense, because if you didn't exist, how did you create yourself? Or they have been created from nothing. Nothing cannot create, so there must be someone who has created them. So this is a Quranic argument. Okay? But the major focus is on correcting the understanding of people about God, which relates to the attributes of God, that inshallah we talk about it. But because in this age, there are people who are atheists. In the past, mostly we had polytheists. So they believed in God, but in a polytheistic way. But now, because we have atheists and we have you know, questions uh, put forward about the existence of God, so we need to be able to argue for the existence of God. We need to back up our faith, our iman, with reasoning. This is very important. If you study the Rasal manual books, you know, and fiqh, you see all marajas say in the beginning of Rasala that when it comes to your aqidah, your belief system, you should have certainty and you should have the ability to reason. You cannot do taqlid in aqaid. You cannot say, I believe in God because my parents or my marja says that God exists. For the basic principles of aqidah, you have to have certainty and you have to have your own arguments. Once Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam with some of his companions met an old lady. This old lady was working with a machine, a simple machine for making thread. You know, they used to take wool and make thread. Rasulullah asked him, how did you come to know about God? How did you, you know, convince yourself and prove for yourself that God exists? He said, sorry, she said, when I work with this machine, I realize that my hand moves the machine. And if my hand stops, the machine stops. So although there is motion, there is movement in the machine, but I realize that it comes from another source. Because the machine itself cannot be self-moving. So it must be from a mover. So she said, the same is about this world. The movement that exists in this world, like movement of the planets and the stars, <coughs> should be given by a mover. This is very similar to an argument which philosophers like Aristotle and many people have developed, which is called the first mover or the prime mover, which says that every motion should be created by a mover and if that mover is moving should be created by another mover and then we have to reach the point that we have unmoved mover which is the prime mover okay so this old lady in a simple language 
developed an argument for the existence of God that philosophers have developed. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, upon hearing this sentence from this old lady said, Alaykum bideen al You should try to have your faith and your religion similar to the religion of old ladies. What does it mean? It means like this old lady who is wise and is able to argue for her faith, you should try also to be able to argue for your faith. So it's very important for us to have arguments for the existence of God. And there is nothing wrong in Islam if you ask for argument and actually it is a must. Don't feel bad if you have questions about the existence of God or about anything about religion. Having questions, not only is not bad, it's also actually a way to come to understanding. What is bad is when you don't know, you don't ask. This is bad. But if you don't know and you ask, it's not bad. Or what is bad is you ask for the sake of asking. There are people who ask not for understanding. They just enjoy asking. Uh, I remember once, uh, you know, in uh, one of the cities in UK, we had a visitor, an alim from Iran was visiting us. And at that time, there was a kind of hot debate in Iran over many issues. So some people used to ask challenging questions. So I saw a person put a question on paper and passed it on to people to be taken to the pulpit. And then he left. Then I was surprised. If you want to understand and you ask questions, you should stay in the majlis. Not that, you know, you give the question and then you leave. So it's like a political uh, then uh, exercise that you just want to raise this question, okay, and trouble the speaker, but you don't want to understand. Or I have seen people who ask the same question. Every alim that they meet, they ask the same question. If you really want to understand, so you don't need to repeat all the time the same question. Sometimes people, you know, learn difficult questions and they want to test or they want to challenge. They want to, you know, put uh, people in corner. So asking question is not a bad thing and actually the good thing. But it has etiquettes, it has manners. Once uh, in Germany, we were in a conference and a lady who was a professor in University of Berlin, uh, she said, the Quran is not very uh, much encouraging people to ask questions. And I was, uh, you know, surprised so I listened to what evidence she has and then she mentioned that for example the Quran says don't ask things that if they are explained to you they would annoy you so then there was a time for discussion I said 
actually the Quran is not against asking questions. And also, uh, sorry, she mentioned also the uh, story of Musa and Khizr. That Musa was asking questions and Khizr, you know, was not very happy and finally said, Hada faraqu So I said, Islam is not against asking questions. Actually, the Quran says, Fas'alu ahla dhikr in kuntum la'ata'alamun. You must ask question. If you don't know, you must ask the question. But the condition is, you ask the question if you don't know. So first, it's a matter of interest in learning. And second, fas'alu ahla dhikr. Ask the people who have knowledge. If we are few people and we are all at the same level, it's not good I raise questions because then it can confuse other people. But I can ask my question from a person who has knowledge. And also we should ask questions in a right time. The problem with uh, Musa and Khiz, you know, in that story, the problem was not why Musa asked questions. The problem was why he asked questions in a time which was not proper. Otherwise, later, Khizr gave all the answers to Musa, It was just a matter of testing the patience of the learner. Like, for example, sometimes I say, uh, please, when I am discussing, uh, keep your question in your mind or take a note. And after I stop, you raise your question. So I don't have problem with your question, but I'm saying for the sake of not disturbing the class, you can ask your question later. So the Quran is not against asking questions. So if someone has doubt about existence of God, no problem. Don't feel that you are a bad person or you know, don't feel that you know, this is uh, something that uh, you should feel embarrassed. No, you can have questions, you can have doubt, but what is important is to be ready to learn, to study, to ask ulama till you finally find the answer. So this is also another important point at the beginning. Now we start with the first argument for the existence of God. Uh, as I said, we study three arguments here. One is argument from design. The other is cosmological argument. The, th other, the last one is argument based on fitra or innate knowledge. So the first that we want to discuss is Burhan al-Nazm, argument from design. This is very common argument among Muslims and non-Muslims. Inshallah, you have studied unit one because unit one is very helpful for thinking about the design that exists in the world. One of the things about the argument from design is that it has very old history. Even in ancient Greece, people like Plato, like Aristotle, studied this argument. In medieval ages, people like St. Thomas uh, discussed this argument. Among Muslim mutakallimin, theologians, this argument is discussed. Among Muslim philosophers, this argument is discussed. For example, in the book, you have Abu Bakr Baqilani, Abu Yusuf Kendi, Ibn Rush or Averos, Abu Hamid Ghazali, 
فخرالدین رازی ازالدین ایجی تفتازانی عبدالرزاق لاهیجی خاج نصیر توسی all have discussed the argument from design and among our contemporary scholars Ayatollah Mutahari, Ayatollah Subhani, Ayatollah Javadi Amuli, Ayatollah Misbah they all have discussed the argument from design so it's a very common argument in the east and in the west what is the core of this argument the core is this to refer to the design that exists in the world and then argue that this design is too sophisticated to be result of accident we cannot rationally be convinced if you want to explain this order by saying that it just happened by chance even for orders that are much less sophisticated we would not be happy to accept that they are result of chance so this is the core of the argument Ayatollah Subhani Hafadahullah, who is one of our uh, great contemporary scholars and Maraja, he mentions few points about Burhan and Nazb. So he has developed a very uh, sophisticated and uh, you know, well-developed account of this uh, argument. He says... In this world, we have, first of all, harmony. Harmony that exists between different parts of this world is unbelievable. You see, the way, for example, Earth and Moon move, which creates days, nights, seasons for us. The way other stars move is so well planned that if a little, a little mistake was happening, a little miscalculation was happening, there would be collapse and clash of these stars and planets. Or, for example, you know, we would, if we were closer to sun, we will be burnt. If we were going farther away, we will be frozen. Everything is well calculated. And it is so nicely calculated that even today we can calculate, for example, moon eclipse that is going to take place after 5,000 years. We can predict Based on or we can go back and find out when was, for example, several thousand years ago that major moon eclipse, for example, or solar eclipse happened. So everything is in harmony. Or when it comes, for example, you know, just to our planet, which is very, very a small part of this world. You know, we are very, very little planet 
in solar system. And solar system is very a small part of Milky Way. And our Milky Way galaxy is very little compared to other galaxies. And still no one knows where is the boundaries of this world, if there are any boundaries of the world. So we are very, very little. But in this planet, you see so much of harmony. Unit one was to explain the harmony that exists in this world. So this is one way. I don't enter into the scientific details because that is what you can get it from the unit one and from other scientific books. Harmony in the world. The scientist, based on this harmony, can design missiles, can design planes, can design cars. All this is because of the harmony that exists in the world. Another aspect of NASM in this world is that in every part of this world, there is design. If you go even inside human cells, you find there is a magnificent like factory which is working 24-7. If you go even further inside atoms, you see there is great NASM and design. If you study the life of animals, birds, insects, you see there is design in every part. So harmony is about the relation between different parts of the world. The second aspect is that in every existing uh, object, there is order and design. And the third aspect of design that Ayatollah Subhani mentions is the fact that everything in this world is created for a purpose. Everything has a purpose, has an end. Not only human beings. For example, you know, imagine the way a child is born and grows. How? the child goes into different stages of growth and development. Uh, I don't know if you have seen the uh, presentation about the growth of embryo. How uh, magnificent is the growth of embryo? Then after that, you know, how everything starts from one cell and then all these bones and skins and, you know, eye and ear, hair, everything comes out. About birds, about plants, about the way that, for example, some of the birds navigate their way and they find, you know, their way in the winter, in summer, to a more uh, suitable place, the way they make their nest about some uh, types of fish, that how they swim 
against the current so that when they want to lay eggs, they are in a, putting it in a proper place. About some, for example, butterflies uh, that they move very fast and the scientists were surprised how fast they move and then they realized that there are corridors of air that they put themselves in that corridors that help them to move faster because they use the pressure of the wind so that they can move faster so everything has purpose and is built in the way that they can move towards their purpose of course we may stop them we may intervene there can be accident but there is a system inside them that if they are left to themselves they can grow and reach the maximum capacity that they have the harmony that they have and the internal design that they have so if you study all the things you would realize that this cannot be by chance even if we had only one thing forget billions of things that we have even one insect for example a bee can a honey bee be created by chance is it possible can a peacock be created by chance if you travel to a place that you have never been there and you see there is a statue of a bee would you be able to think that this statue of the bee can be result of accident for example a flood came and some trees were cut off then those trees were rolled and gradually became small and then somehow they were put together by some i don't know clay and they became like bee everyone would laugh and says this doesn't make sense and this is even a statue of a bee if you see a small machine if you see for example a caesar with metal you know uh, uh, blades you would not accept this is created by chance if you see a small house a small cottage you would not say this is by chance then how can these magnificent living beings be created by chance you know a bee a fly a mosquito is much much more complicated than a helicopter yeah helicopter is not that sophisticated but when it comes to helicopter or even a toy we say it cannot be created by chance there must be a designer so why when it comes to these great things we take everything for granted one a uh, uh, very typical example also is about the probability of typing 
you know, for example, if you have a typing machine, okay, suppose it has 24 letters, okay, and suppose we don't have a small and capital, just keep it very simple, 24 letters. The chance of typing a line of poem by this typing machine is how much? If there's a line. The first letter to come what you like is 1 in 24, the chance. But then to have the second letter, what you want after having the first letter is 1 in 24 in 24. So it would be like 1 in more than 500. And then if you want to have th the third letter what you want, then you add 24. So if you want just to have a line, like maybe 30, 40 letters, come what you want, is one in trillions. So no rational person when sees that there is a typing, typing machine and there is a line of poem say that this can be done by a bird or a, I don't know, beer who played and then this poem came. This is not acceptable. Although mathematically there is a chance, one in trillion, 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 still there is a chance, but this probability is not accepted by rational people as a real probability. So when it comes to this world, the chance of the entire world, not only human cells, not only human organ, not only human body, with the bird, with the plants, with everything, the chance of being result of accident or an explosion is something that no rational person can accept. That this is just by chance. So there must be an intelligent designer. One of the beauties of the argument from design is that it not only proves the existence of God, but it also proves the existence of God as an intelligent being, because design needs intelligence. So it's not just God exists. God must have that much of knowledge and power that can create this system. So it proves the existence of God, but also it proves the knowledge of God and the power of God. Inshallah, we will continue this discussion next week. وَآخِرُ دَعْوَانَ وَالْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ